Welcome to Science of Business podcast by Valueships. My name is Radek and together with experts from various industries, we discuss new research pieces and their application in business life. If you're a manager or you want to be up to date with science that can be applied in your work, this podcast is made for you. Welcome to another episode of Science of Business podcast. Today, my guest is Professor Paul Sanders from Neoma Business School, and we will be talking about his work on populism and leadership. And my first question to you is about the reasoning behind this, because you are working in um, entrepreneurship and strategy department at your school, and I was wondering how do you find populism linked to um, to business and also why back in 2019 when you published this paper, why it was important to uh, research populism? What was the background of this research? Yeah, there was a couple of answers I can give to this. First of all, yes, I'm in the strategy and strategy and entrepreneurship department of a business school, but A, it's a business school in France, and secondly, um, I'm not really a business scholar by origin, let's say. I joined uh, 15 years ago, well, 16 years ago now. Um, but my background is in history. So I'm a historian. I've got a PhD in history. And then later on, I joined um, business schools. And that's where I've been teaching since. And I'm always on the lookout for, uh, obviously, I'm interested in business and entrepreneurship and innovation and all these things. Uh, this is what I, I, I teach, but I'm always on the lookout for um, topics that allow me to wear my political science history hat. And I also perhaps should mention that I'm, I'm my particular interest is in leadership and leadership studies and how this relates to ethics. And I don't merely, actually predominantly, I don't look at uh, business leadership uh, but I look at all forms of leadership, including in NGOs and po politics, etc. Um, so, yeah, to um, reiterate that, so I'm always on the lookout for um, themes that allow me to write some stuff that um, where I can wear my political science hat. And of course, in 2000, well, the published the article was published in 2019. It's actually two articles: one published in 2019, one published in 2020. But the work for this already started in 2016-17 and of course 2016 is the year of populism in Europe and and in America because it's the uh, year of the Brexit vote and the year of the election of Donald Trump to the US presidency so yeah as you probably you're familiar with this um, when something gets published in 2019 in a in an academic journal it means that the work for this was already done two or three years earlier and of course in 2016-17 Populism was one of the really big topics. Okay, so this fitted my own interest of um, being able to identify political science topics and then turning this into uh, publishable articles, publish or perish. Unfortunately, that's the the, the name of the game, um, and that's how I got to this topic. And of course, um, the other thing I might say is that uh, my angle to this is very original or innovative because I talk about these two. Um, German Jewish thinkers who um, already in the 1940s and 50s were dealing 
in their scientific work with similar phenomena with what we experienced then in the 2020s yeah, or the 2010s. Uh, and this work I was familiar with um, previously from my previous work in history, and I tried to combine the two things. That was very interesting to me to realize in the um, abstract of your paper that the word populism was the word of the year in 2017. Like for me right now uh, in 2022, it seems like it was forever around and it seems like it doesn't want to let go um, of us. So um, from from my standpoint, another reason why it's important for businesses in a way that we have, um, especially as managers, we have some social influence and and if we understand populism and its threats to democracy i think uh, we can have some impact in uh in our workplaces um and this is in the moment i think quite an important responsibility of ours like this social responsibility we have towards our um colleagues to um to understand what is going on around us. And I'm really happy that you joined me to uh, share your insights. So um, I wonder what, what I liked about your paper is that um, for me, who only knows populism from um, pop science articles and, and, and like modern journalism, but not really from the scientific um, approach, I really liked how you summarized what populism is thought um, in, in this course, what it is and what it actually how can it be misunderstood and i wonder if you could breathe us in in this subject how how do you think populism is misunderstood in the um in discourse my work is a critique of populism theory as it's done at the moment uh in particular by political scientists what i say is that they do what one might call a holy grail approach that means uh, they're trying to um, pin down populism to one single key factor. So they look at the phenomenon, and this is very um, in line with positivist science. They look at the uh, a phenomenon which they label populism, and then they hypothesize about its possible causes. And the results they come up with is that um, they say that this is most of the theory that I criticize in this article. They say that it's either linked to ideas, to so particular ideas uh, about politics, yeah, about the relation between the people and the elite, yeah. So that that pop, uh, populists work with these ideas, but they don't necessarily, yeah, and that they believe in these ideas as well, okay, and that the people who follow them also believe in these ideas. So. Yeah, for example, the idea that the elite, uh, the elites are cannot be trusted, yeah, and that the populists represent the people, the real people, against the global elites or other elites, yeah, that are not working in the in the interest of the people. That's the that's one of the first theories. Yeah, I'm simplifying a little bit. Then there is another theory that says that it's all about, it's a strategic approach. The populists don't really believe in their own ideas, but they use this in order to gain power, yeah? And then there is the cultural performative theory of uh, populism, uh, which says that um, populism can be um, detected more or less through uh, a certain number of um, cultural or other phenomena, performative phenomena uh, linked to populism. 
And I criticize this. I call this that I don't say this specifically in the articles that I write, but I say that this is a holy grail approach because it tries to pin down uh, populism to one single factor. And typically it also revolves about one uh, about in, around individual leaders who often, and this is where it gets particularly dangerous in my opinion, who often also charismatic leaders or, or so-called charismatic leaders. So charisma is much used in social science, but it's a very fuzzy notion. And um, the, the problem with this is um, it only requires one counterexample to disprove all these theories. And the other thing, of course, is um, the assumption behind these theories. The assumption behind these theories is that everything would be great, I'm simplifying here again, if it weren't for those damn populists. Okay, so this is the, the assumption, yeah, that it's that populism is a phenomenon that is relatively recent, um, that it's got something to do with dem demagoguery, and that everything uh, things would be fine if if these people weren't around, yeah. And of course, this is um, highly problematic. So connected with this, all the also the idea that if it wasn't for a Trump or Bolsonaro, then things would be fine, and we have this similar wishful thinking. In the case of Vladimir Putin, yeah, so journalists speculating about the numerous lethal diseases that he has or has not, and how much time he's got left, and then always assuming that um, a best-case scenario, that afterwards a liberal will come in, a Navalny, uh, and that things will be so much better. And this doesn't go to the root cause of the problem. And this is what I say in my article, that this idea that it's uh, this assumption that things would be so much better if there weren't these charismatic leaders, or Trump, or Bolsonaro, or Orban in Hungary, um, that this is not really um, the, the way forward to, to think about uh, populism. Yeah. So, so in a way, you think there are many more enablers for populism than just those people who, those self-proclaimed anti-establishment leaders who... Uh, um, who are with with their charisma who are who are using the um using the opportunity to gain power in in this manner in this uh, with this rhetoric is is there so do you have some a broader model or or is it just for now the, the first step to to negate that it's not that simple exactly i think there's a problem of lens yeah because um the, the lens that's used by research and populism is very limited in scope. And um, in, in actual fact, in order to understand populism or something you might call populism, because uh, the question of definition is also a difficult one already. But in any case, it might be a much better, it is a much better idea. That's what I say, uh, citing Hannah Arendt and then also Franz Neumann, uh, is a much better idea to start digging a bit deeper and looking at the root causes of this thing we call populism. And um, so I'm not the only one who argues this. There are other thinkers and writers as well who say that the problem is not something we might call populism, but the crisis of society and also the crisis of democracy that leads to the symptom called populism. And this is um, what populism theory actually does not look at. So associated with the question of when did this crisis start? Is it 2008? 
Uh, and if it is 2008, then we can always use also the precedent of the 1930s. Because uh, I really like to um, surprise students by, or other people as well, not only students, but by asking them how much percent of the vote Hitler got in 1928 election. So 1933 is the year when the Nazis take power in Germany. And how many percent did the uh, Nazis get in the 1928 Reichstag election in Germany? And the answer to that is 2.8% of the popular vote. Okay, And then four years later, in 1932, they have multiples of this. And what has changed between 1928 and 1932? Well, 1929, 1930, the world economic crisis that was very badly handled. So yes, there is, um, there is an argument to be made about these um, extremist movements um, where you um, contextualize and say, well, what was going on at that time? And what you had then was a massive economic and financial crisis that got out of hand and then lead to these extremisms. Yeah, I've, I think we are coming to the root of your paper where you, um, using the work of Hannah Arendt and Franz Neumann, you refer to how populism is um, similar in some ways with uh, totalitarian leadership. And, and maybe we can... Um, dive deeper into this topic, into the works of those philosophers. Yeah, what is the, um, what leads one to compare um, or to, to look for elements in populism that derive from the analysis of these two thinkers of um, totalitarianism in this case, in the case of Hannah Arendt. Uh, Neumann didn't really, um, he's not really a theoretician of uh, totalitarianism. But he's a Marxist uh, scholar who um, provided the first theoretical analysis of Nazi Germany. And both of them are interested in looking at the root causes of what um, led to uh, totalitarianism, the case of Hannah Arendt, and what led to the emergence of um, what Franz Norman calls the behemoth. So he uses this... Um, that's the, the title he gave to his book on Nazi Germany, which he published in the early 1940s. Um, and I'm not going to go into detail here because that would lead too far. But what what um, what Neumann takes from Marx, Marx is the idea of alienation. Yeah, and this is very similar to what Hannah Arendt argues because she also um, she sees the origins of totalitarianism first of all in the uh, alienation of individuals, yeah, um, who then find, um, you might say, a new home in mass movements, in what she calls the mob, um, which then leads to mob rule, and which um, and these, these mobs are instrumentalized by totalitarian leaders. Um, so there's a lot of stuff um, in the work of um, Hannah Arendt, but also Franz Neumann. Neumann also brings in psychology, when he talks about um, neuroses, yeah, and political, so the the, uh, the neurosis that then takes hold of politics, yeah, so neurotic ideas uh, about absurdities, basically, and how this then gets translated into politics by the um, by the Nazis in particular. So there are analogies, there are similar things in what Hannah Arendt describes in her work on totalitarianism and also what Franz Neumann talks about in not so much in Behemoth, but in some other writings, um, 
where he talks about precisely alienation of the of the individual. His analysis is slightly different to Hannah Arendt, but we're not going to go into this. Um, but there are analogies between what they described then in the 1930s and 40s and what we then experienced in 2016. Yeah, the way the populists operate, yeah, their way of operation. So there's there's also this interesting anecdotal thing that um, which I described in my article. Um, that Hannah Arendt's book, uh, Origins of Totalitarianism, Totalitarianism, how this shot up to the list of, um, I think, top 10 or top 50 um, sales in on Amazon. Yeah, this is, So there, there were a lot of people at the time in 2016 who were looking out for somebody who might explain what's going on, who then turned back to Hannah Arendt. That, that's an interesting link. And, and I wonder... Um... Sticking for a little bit longer for this alienation of individuals. So, uh, what 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 I observe in in, in populist narrative is that um, we frequently the the there there are them and there is us. So 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 this um, link with uh, with the audience with the masses, and then there are those antagonized groups that uh, keep on appearing, and it also appears a lot in. Um, Polish uh, political rhetoric that there is always an enemy to the state. There is, um, like, first they were antagonizing LGBT movements, then they were antagonizing people for abortion laws and so forth. And they were antagonizing women at some um, at some point. Um, is I wonder so if this is this link to the alienation or um, so so kind of like creation of of those. Uh, um alienated groups or how do you um how do you find the link for the current times this would be in line with a analysis of um of populism that goes more with the um you know you see my, my criticism of this would be to say that this doesn't go this doesn't go deep enough that one really needs to go a lot deeper to understand why um this is happening the way it is, but of course, uh, yes, the, the the scapegoating element in in totalitarianism and then in populism—that's always, of course, um, that's the first thing they really leap at, uh, because it's the easiest way to um, to stir up passion uh, and stay in power. So, and this probably relates to the second theoretical approach in populism literature and theory, which is the strategic approach. So. What can leaders actually do in order to stay in power um, or to increase their hold on power and what they will do? And this is something that we've seen over and over again. It's to, um, to in, implore the, uh, the existence of enemies, outer enemy and inner enemy, and then to, to polarize this debate, yeah? because that's the only way they can, um, that's the only way in which they can score. Because their their political formula is relatively simple. It's about us and them. This is also kind of a return to the 1930s or 40s. This us and them dichotomy where I create um, these enemies or these scapegoats. And basically they serve the function of um, solid, solidifying my own grip on power. Yeah. So rather than solving problems yeah, or tackling problems or getting involved in the complicated or even complex solution of problems, 
I simplify things and I say it's all it's all a, it's always something to do with somebody else who is um, not playing according to the rules of the game or who is um, distracting us, etc. So this could be immigrants, or it could be uh, sexual minorities, or it could be um, it could be anyone really who doesn't fit in with the with the, with um, a definition of the main of the, what the mainstream should be. Yeah. So yeah, sure. This is. Um, this is a classic approach to um, to um, to to this kind of politics, to this kind of new politics. We also saw it in Brexit. You could take any recent um, phenomenon that is somehow related to uh, populism, like uh, also the the Trump style politics, or what Orban does in in Hungary. You've got it in Poland. You have it uh, also. I mean, we had a French election last year. With one candidate running on one ticket, immigration or anti-immigration rather, so you get these one-ticket candidates. All they're saying is that they boil everything down, or this particular candidate boiled all the problems of France down to one thing: immigration. Okay, and this is very, very uh, typical for this type of um, populist politics. But of course, the critique of it: where does all this come from? Yeah, so. Because we're looking now at the manifestations, at the symptoms, but what about the root causes? And I, my article doesn't really thematize so much these these symptoms or what uh, populist leaders um, say that they do or what they do um, or what they don't do. But it's more about um, the root causes. What can we do? What is the root of all of this? Yeah, uh, and isn't populism just giving something a name rather than saying we don't actually need to give this thing a particular name. We need to go to the root causes and what can we do to approach or tackle those root causes of this thing that we call populism, okay? Because I'm not sure that populism actually exists or whether it is so new as some populism researchers tend to suggest. We have this idea that it's um, very, very new and it was the Cambridge word of the Cambridge Dictionary um, new word of the year in 2017, but there are people out there who say that populism has always existed, that it existed in the 19th century in the United States, for example, where there were movements that were anti-immigration. Okay, So in, in, a, in a country like the US, which is a country built on immigration, yeah, on exile, um, there were movements in the 19th century that wanted to limit immigration. Uh, and they were um, very influential for a time. So this phenomenon is perhaps not as new as we might think. It's always been around, and maybe it's got something to do with the way in which, in fact, democracy operates as well. And we go through these cycles. Because the other thing that's interesting now is that um, I wrote this in 2019, but of course populism now um, is already a little bit old hat yeah, compared to what it was two or three years ago, because since we've gone through the COVID crisis, yeah the sanitary crisis, and then since um, February 2022, nobody's been talking about anything else apart from, I mean, it's been Ukraine has been, and Russia has been the big topic, and populism is already on the way out again. So it could come back in again, but in a way, a lot of people um, who have um, slightly rose, um, rosy, were wearing rosy spectacles, yeah, rose-colored spectacles, um, there is this hope, this optimism that it's that it's already over in a way, which of course is um, 
it's not accurate. It could all of this sort of stuff could come back anytime. But of course, the election um, defeats of populists in late, last lately in in Brazil, yeah, Bolsonaro is out. Um, so this um, might inform a certain optimistic um, denouement, yeah, a certain optimistic idea that this is that this is already history again now. But um, I wouldn't I wouldn't say I wouldn't um, adhere to this because I think what we call populism or these manifestations of something we call populism, um, the root causes of all this are still around today. So the idea is to dig a much deeper than just to say, here is a phenomenon, we call it populism. It does this and that. Um, the, the idea is to dig much deeper than that. Uh, and that's what the um, work of Hannah Arendt and Franz Neumann really incites us to do, to dig, to go for root causes. So, so going to back to those root causes, because I think we um, already covered some. So um, one is the crisis, uh, the economic crisis that shifts people towards uh, more uh, radical um, beliefs and, and attitudes. Then you mentioned this alienation of individuals uh, from, uh, from Neumann. Is there... Um, like lately, we we skipped into this uh, strategic approach of populism that that they um, formed the narrative to to stay into power. But I wonder, going back to the root causes, is there is something else that we should uh, mention here that you think are the um, reasons why populism is still around and and could be a threat? The idea is to look at liberal society and representative democracy in general, and to kind of consider that um, these crises of democracy and of society, that they might be a feature that is recurring, okay? Because the idea with uh, populism research is, or what populism researchers are almost suggesting, is that there is a kind of normality, yeah? And that the populists take us out of this, this normality uh, to more extreme forms of politics And that once you stop those uh, people from doing this, that you can return to this normality again, which is uh, almost conflict-free. And this is where somebody like Hannah Arendt would say that this is a flawed way of looking upon things, that liberal democ democracy, liberal society has this crisis built into it, this potential for crisis. Yeah? And um, so her criticism of representative democracy is that um, this takes away... And this is a term that comes from her work, experiences of power from the people. So by outsourcing politics to politicians who become professional politicians who represent you and you're only being asked every four or five or whatever years uh, who you want to see in power, um, this takes away the experience of power. So people delegate this power to people who represent them, but that this is very prone to crisis because when people lack these experiences of power, then alienation might kick in. Yeah, And you can contrast this with other forms of democracy, like direct democracy that you have in some places still in Switzerland. Or what she also feels very um, positive about, the, the council democracies that existed for a short time in after the first world war in particular but which then of course degenerated into mob rule because that's the problem so the problem is really that there is a, a dilemma because on the one hand you want to enable people 
to have more experiences of power, like direct democracy, in Switzerland. But on the other hand, you cannot afford this to develop into mob rule because, of course, Hannah Arendt is realistic enough to understand that not all manifestations of grassroots democracy are genuine manifestations of, gra of grassroots democracy interested in the public are good because she was uh, she was lucid enough to have made that one conclusion from the 1930s that um, when you open the floodgates, then you also can get mob rule. And that mob rule really um, contributed to the totalitarian dictatorships. Yeah. So there is a problem here in the way liberal democracies uh, function, yeah, because it takes away um, experiences of power from the people. But then there's always this recurring problem of um, of more of the possibility of mob rule. And what she says is that we need to be very clear about what she says: the worldly people, so those who lead grassroots movements, which are genuine, genuinely interested in democracy providing genuine experience of power to the people and the demagogues who simply use grassroots democracy in order to pervert this into a mass movement that, again, alienates people even more, although it's saying the opposite, um, and which also doesn't represent the any form of common good. Yeah, So... So in a way, what we need to do is um, what we need to do. One of the solutions would be to, first of all, not do what some are saying. So some people are saying, and this is extremely dangerous, and this is something Hannah Arendt would never agree with. They're saying that um, outcomes like the Brexit vote or even the election of Donald Trump in the United States, and I'm caricaturing here, but basically what they're suggesting is that this is due to the stupidity of voters, that voters are too stupid that they're not well enough informed about uh, economic, social, and political issues, Yeah, that they don't watch the right kind of TV, um, that they don't do the right, they don't have the right kind of reflex, they are not really citizens, uh, and that they then are tempted to vote for these extremist politicians, yeah, or politicians that do a very different type of extremist politics, and that we should take the vote away from them and only let smart people vote. Yeah? And this was actually suggested by one political scientist in the uh, United States. And this is something that Hannah Arendt wouldn't agree with at all. Because what she says is that people are not stupid. They simply lack experience of power because they have been alienated. Alienated either by uh, liberal democracy, the way it functions, that it only asks you every now and then, what you want, and then you get the feeling that these people who you do elect, that they don't really do what they were elected for. Yeah, um, the alienation also that happens through um, the the way that markets operate. Yeah, that people can lose their jobs, um, not knowing what's going on really, and then everything is explained with some kind of market efficiency. Yeah, so you lost your job because um, this is how efficient markets operate. That people. Um, People now are also cut off from, from the wealth creation that we've seen over several decades. So there's this assumption that you could always say, um, well, life is tough, but I'm, I'm going to have a better life than my parents and grandparents if I try hard enough. Well, th this equation no longer functions the way it used to do. So we're coming out of this 
the, the these decades of growth, and we've been told by politicians uh, repeatedly that the um, the air, the era of abundance is over, and that we need to um, tighten our belts. And um, at the same time, we see that the number of billionaires is growing every year, and this, of course, alienates people, and then they don't want to really participate in the political process anymore because they don't see where the point is, and then they fall prey to more extremist types of politics. Okay, so, um, and this is where Hannah Arendt would say we need to give back the experience of power to the people rather than taking the vote away from them and saying them, you are too stupid to vote, so you're not allowed to vote anymore because this will just contribute even more to the polarization of society. This is not a solution at all. Okay. Mm -hmm. And the technology is out there for that. So, so it's... Uh it might be uh, implemented because to <laughs> i recall during when when the um, covid hit poland and we were supposed to have elections and some 20 something million euro were wasted for a not really legal um, correspondence voting system that weren't wasn't used at uh, at all in those elections but um, the technology is out there to enable some part of uh, direct democracy. And it it resembles to me, I was recently reading the book Radical Markets by Posner and, and, and Vail, um, where they suggest one of the solutions. And I wonder how much this could be um, a solution also to this problem, this um, quadratic voting, as they say. So every citizen should have... Um, number of votes per uh, per year and then they decide how much they vote for each of the causes that they find important so in a sense this could resolve the issues of minorities which are always outvoted by the majority for instance um, a recent case in poland about in vitro laws which only affect the very small minority that have um, trouble with um, getting their own children while the ma majority is voting against them because they didn't uh, suffer from uh, from this issue. Um, so I wonder how how do you see the the practical solution to um, um, to this issue? Well, there are quite a few things one can say here. First of all, one should also be a bit, be a bit skeptical about the technical possibilities because they could be abused or misused as we know from social media for example so social media um, is a very two-edged sword because on the one also i mean what does social media really uh, contribute to, to people in terms of experiences of power when it can be so easily abused by outside powers as we've as we've seen for example in the u.s hacking scandal um, but and also Brexit and Cambridge Analytica and all these um, these things that happened. Um, so I'm not sure one should also place all one's trust in, in technical solutions of these uh, experiences of power. Um, I also don't have a, a recipe for for success now. It's just rather than focusing on what populists do and don't do, and um, one should perhaps change one's lens and say, well, we need to tackle quite a number of issues which are the source of which make populist politicians or the people who call themselves populists, which make them so attractive. Yeah, what is it that makes these people so attractive? And what can we do in order to even um, block this attractiveness of these particular types of, um, of, of politicians, which are not new at all? So 
there has been similar things in the past. Um, and of course, and they operate in similar in a similar way as um, the totalitarians did, as described by Hannah Arendt, yeah, and Franz Neumann with alienation. So yeah, I mean, the the suggestions you make there. Yes, we need to experiment with some of the things you've mentioned, but on the other hand, we also need to be a little bit critical about things like artificial intelligence because as it's becoming increasingly clear now, uh, you've probably you're probably familiar with Homo Deus, uh, Yuval Harari's. Uh, book um, where he is very critical towards uh, artificial intelligence. Um, this is not necessarily only a tool in the hands of uh, liberal democracies, but it can also be used, and it is being used by uh, authoritarian regimes and dictatorships. And it's a very, very useful tool in, in their hands. So, yes, experience of power can be a lot of things. Um, for example, I mean, Let's face it, uh, I don't like people throwing um, potato mash onto Vermeer's or strawberry yogurt onto Da Vinci's, but the people who are at the moment um, becoming a bit more militant with regard to raising the issue of climate change, um, this is perhaps, because there's a lot of criticism of this, but I can, I'm, I would situate this within the uh, experiences of power field, although it is extremely controversial. But I have a lot of sympathy for these people. I don't like that they have to do this or that they are doing this. But um, in, in, my, in my opinion, this is a manifestation of uh, experience of power because they're not really vandalizing anything, but they are yeah, throwing up a, couple, a bit of inconvenience and also reminding the world of... Um, yeah, the 2.5 that we're going towards now instead of 1.5. We missed our targets and not enough is being done. And this is an an existential threat to humanity, which then also kicks off, I'm talking about climate change, kicks off a number of other phenomena which are great for populists. For example, immigration. Yeah, as I said earlier in France, we want a candidate, one of the candidates who only runs on immigration, that's his only topic, the strategic approach, yeah? Um, well, he wouldn't be able to do that if we were able to tackle immigration or deal with this in a better manner. And the problem is, of course, um, I mean, this is there's multiple issues connected to this. But if you look only at some, um, why is all the wealth of Africa migrating north? Well, because we have tax havens where, uh, I mean, if you look at um, the, the figures, then you will see that uh, the African debt is nothing compared to um, the, the the wealth that is migrating north to tax havens from African countries. Africa is a rich continent, but um, heavily indebted, and people are leaving Africa because they are, Africa is a continent run by kleptocratic elites with the um, complicity of um, Western bankers. Yeah, bankers located in the Western Hemisphere. I'm not going to name any uh, names now, but um, and this is one of the things that could be dealt with if we had the real willpower to do so. Um, climate change also contributes to uh, migrational flows because it erodes the possibility of people to continue living where they're living now, and we've only seen the start of this. So. Um, yeah, tackling climate change, 
doing something about this rather than the current stagnation. Um, that would be a that would be also something that would improve. Um, that would make it more difficult for populist politicians to come along and and exploit these these very controversial issues. Mm-hmm. So, so in a sense, um, because what we sometimes observe, and I think that's also uh, problematic, is that um, the the leftist or or just the op- opposite side of the uh, of the political spectrum um, tries to fight with the same weapon so tries to use also populist um, rhetoric in their own uh, campaigns while what you suggest is to be more mm, solution oriented and and more um, data and argumentation driven to to contrast with the um, with the very same with the very same topics that are raised by the populist um, leaders is that um, did, did I did I capture it well or you would clarify this yes um, to take the wind out of the sails of the populists so an issue like immigration doesn't need to be an issue. Um, problem in Europe is there is no normative basis for immigration, so anybody can do what they want. Uh, Germany, they raised the the gates in 2015 without really asking anybody else by saying, "Well, it's convenient for us now." Well, they don't really say that. They say that we're helping Greece, and we don't want this uh, crisis to boil over in other in in southern Europe. So we're opening the borders. But hang on a minute, uh, the European Union. Uh, doesn't really function like that yeah so when it suits us then we go back to kind of national principles yeah but otherwise we're claiming uh, we're claiming that the uh, issue that issues or problems can be solved on the on, on the on the level of the community so yeah and and I wonder um, because the majority of our audience um, as, as we as we stated in the opening, Um, might have some influence. So, so uh, a lot of managers are listening to us and I wonder what is within our power and maybe if you could give us some arguments um, to to present how populist agenda is dangerous and, and that uh, it should be eliminated from a political discourse. So, you know, wh- whenever we finish to listen to this podcast, Uh, we have some something to talk about with our teams, with our colleagues in in our workplaces and in our uh, surrounding. How do you right now in those those three years after publishing this paper? How do you see um, populism uh, troubling democracy in uh, in today's politics? Um. I would say there's a couple of things one could say here. First of all is to understand that businesses um, are political protagonists. Yeah, So not to fall for this, this idea that um, businesses are simply passive, um, passive followers of um, political trends. No, um, businesses are capable of shaping reality. Yeah, First of all, political reality as well. And... Um, 
making something out of this requires a certain amount of um, openness, creativity. That would be the first thing. So uh, businesses, especially larger business, um, they are political actors, or ge even geopolitical actors in some cases, and they have a lot of power to shape reality. And this means more than simply um, having a CSR um, scheme or, or, or perspective or whatever, or department, because CSI is very, very limited in terms of what it does and doesn't do. For example, I think businesses need to now consider after the, um, well, let's look at what happened in Russia. Uh, businesses have been withdrawing from Russia because of the aggressive imperialist <clears throat> invasion of, uh, of a neighboring country. And um, businesses need to consider their exposure to countries such as Russia. And Russia is the small fry because the um, interpenetration between Russia and the West was rather limited, but there are other countries which are very heavily reliant on countries which would have an interest in, in stoking the fires of populism in, in liberal democracies. Because let's face it, uh, liberal democracy and authoritarian regimes, they're not friends. They can never be friends. Um, they're always going to be at some kind of war, and to simply negate, negate this reality um, is, um, is folly. Yeah? So the democracies will always try to undermine the authoritarian regimes. Yeah? You see this in the media every day. Um, and vice versa, the authoritarian the, um, regimes or the dictatorships, the fully-fledged dictatorships, they will be unable to accept um, the, um, the way that democracies operate because democracy operates, for example, on the, on the basis of extending the spheres of liberty and freedom. Yeah? I mean, we can see this in the emergence of um, issues like uh, Me Too and LGBTQ, which were not issues 10 or 20 years ago and which have now become really major issues in, in, in the discourse in, in, in the Western world, in Western democracies. Um, and this is something that dictatorships um, can't really deal with because they're based on a very conservative, on a very reactionary view of the world where you don't necessarily need to extend the, the number of stakeholders and things like that. You know? um, there were a couple of other ideas I had earlier on, but now they've just um, left... left um, that's um, mm, that's already a lot to to process and and it, in a sense, what what I'm taking the most from uh, from our meeting today is to realize that what we are experiencing today might not might not be that new as we think, um, and what are the roots might also be recurring, and what is the most frightening to me is that what could be the consequences if we are not talking about it, if we are not pointing to populist agenda to to name it, to um, to show how how it's wrong in terms of um, focusing on on some very particular uh, issues rather than explaining how the full political agenda will look like under their 
um, under their rule. I think that's um, something to take and something to treat very seriously. Um, concerning some, like the reason also why I why I wanted to talk with you right now is that in our country the um, elections are coming and we will have we will soon experience a lot of um, narrative that <laughs> yeah that we are better able to to understand thanks to thanks to your work so yeah thank you very much for that and just maybe l giving you the last um um last closing remarks and also i would like to ask you if you have some recommendations of uh, further reading of your work on uh, on populism or, or generally on on leadership um i would also appreciate that so leaving uh, giving the um Mike, to you again. Yes, if you want to, um, you can follow me on LinkedIn. So I have a LinkedIn account, a subscription, or whatever it's called. Um, I'm also present on, I also have a website. So Paul mm -hmm. slash Sanders.org. Well, I haven't been very active um, recently, but I did upload a couple of um, audio podcasts on on leadership in historical perspective because that's where um, my real interest lies. Mm -hmm. All right, I will also include the link in the description of um, of this episode. And of course, I also have an academia.edu page where I upload all my work and which is also a way of, of getting in touch with me i get email i get messages through the through the platform of people who've um, looked at my work and who have questions or comments etc sometimes criticism as well which is fine um so this this would be the three um and of course i would um encourage everyone to read um the work of hannah arendt yeah, Franz Neumann doesn't really exist much in English translation. Uh, I'm just checking up the re reference here. So this um, this essay that I worked with was Angst und Politik, only exists in the original German, which is a shame because this is a very good article about the political psychology of uh, totalitarian leadership, about alienation, etc. So it's this mix of Marxism, Marxist theory, and um, psychoanalysis, um, which he gets from the Frankfurt School, which was very influential in Germany after the Second World War. Um, so I, I really have to... Uh, Arendt is more accessible because all her stuff exists in, in English. Yeah. However, sometimes she's misunderstood because she's not an easy um, author to, to read. So one... It's better sometimes, in order to understand what she really means, to look at some people who spend all their lives uh, studying Hannah Arendt. So there would be, and I'm going to make some um, recommendations here. So one bit would be uh, Bear and Walsh, uh, the anthem companion to Hannah Arendt. That's a very good um, reader to understand, to better understand Hannah Arendt. And it's in this reader. Uh, in this anthology, rather, that I found, um, I think its name is Peter Bear, The Theory of Totalitarian Leadership, where he talks about 
this. Yeah. Then there is, of course, uh, Berkowitz. Um, he runs the uh, Hannah Arendt Center. Um, I forgot where the place is. Somewhere in upstate New York. So there is a center dedicated to Hannah Arendt. They also have a library there. And uh, Berkowitz, I forgot his first name, R. Berkowitz. Um, he has he publishes a lot of um, very good articles. Uh, he also has a website, I believe, um, where he explains we where he interprets the work of Hannah Arendt. So Berkowitz would also be a recommendation, and then of course um, Margaret Canovan. I think she was the biographer of Hannah Arendt. She also wrote a biography, and I used her a lot in my work. So. Hannah Arendt is not so easily accessible as some people think. That's why, for example, her Eichmann book is um, largely misunderstood. People think that she uh, was duped by Adolf Eichmann and that she didn't really have all the evidence she should have had uh, because she wasn't in Jerusalem for long enough and that she kind of describes Eichmann as a cog in a machine. But that is a misinterpretation of her book because, um, well, she's a philosopher and she writes like a philosopher. And there is, um, I wouldn't say it's ambiguous, but it needs, you need to have a lot of, um, you need to be in the habit of reading Hannah and to really understand her. And that's why it's for lay people or the interested readers, it's interesting to get these, um, these people who help us understand Hannah Arendt a bit better. And the origins of totalitarianism, of course, is very um, interesting read. Um, but again, it's it's a heavy uh, heavy read as well. It's not an easy read, although it sold so phenomenally well after the election of Donald Trump. But this is not an easy read. This is a text one typically would go give to political science um, undergraduates. That's when I read it. But it's not an easy read. Yeah. Um, so it's good to have these other philosophers and thinkers and writers who have. Who can give us an interpretation of these great thinkers? Thank you very much. I, I have noted it all down, and I will also include them so so every listener can find them in the um, description of uh, this episode. And thank you very much for joining me and sharing um, all your insights. I'm I usually tend to count how many. Uh, pages of notes I have and for today it's six pages of notes so um, there is plenty to process after this talk and thank you for your work well thank you for having me on your show thank you for listening to this episode of Science of Business podcast follow Value Ships on LinkedIn and Facebook to be up to date with future episodes and live streams from the recording